So we're on 530. Everybody, welcome to Mike Drop Colin Show. Sorry um, about being a day late. Normally we do this on Wednesdays at 530s. Colin, of course, is a podcast app you can get at all of your favorite pod locations, anywhere that you're you're getting your pods, Apple, Spotify, Google, it's all there. Um, or you can subscribe to the Colin Show. Incidentally, I think most of you are subscribers. If you are subscribed or are not a subscriber, subscribe so that when we start a show, you can get alerted. That's probably how most of you got the notice that we were here. And um, if you can also share the fact that we're having this on Twitter, Mastodon, wherever you're at. By the way, Mastodon, um, it seems to be that the, the migration, the Twitter migration is continuing in that direction. Elon Musk just cannot help himself. Kind of reminds me of Donald Trump. He just can't get out of his own way. He kind of keeps making it worse. And I think that uh, begs kind of the question, is he kind of doing this on purpose, right? Remember the questions we used to ask about Donald Trump? Is this, is this part of some grand strategy? Is this guy brilliant? No, the answer is no. The same way Donald Trump wasn't. This is just fumbling and foiling along. And a lot of these guys who are billionaires, and most of them are guys, are just not that intelligent. Um, I think it's just simply that they've, you know, they've got some bravado. They've got some panache. They've got a lot of connections. Both of them came from wealthy fathers uh, with established uh, connections into finance and were able to kind of leverage that into a fabulous, fabulous wealth. And I don't think that there's anything particularly impressive about their business acumen and what they were able to pull off. That, of course, being aside the point, um, jump into the queue. We're going to have a hard stop today at 630. We're going to do a full hour. But as you can see, kind of in the post-elections, groups are getting a little bit smaller. Holiday season is upon us. People are a little bit more busy than talking kind of about the esoteric uh, questions about politics. I did want to uh, have this conversation with everybody today about Trump and DeSantis. And the reason why is I actually sat uh, down by Zoom with a group of uh, hedge fund managers who are looking to get an assessment of the political environment as we're heading into uh, this next year. And there's a lot of questions about the presidential primary because on the Republican side, because it will largely, I think, dictate some of the politics of the conference, the Republican conference, which is, we've talked about at length, um, really bifurcated in a way that I have never seen in my 30 years of activism and involvement with the Republican conference. I don't think anybody's seen any conference that's divided in living memory, uh, Republican or Democrat. It's typical to have a right left or a, or a center left, uh, you know, uh, schism in, in either the Democratic Party. It was a really big issue with the Democrats in the 80s, the rise of the Democratic Leadership Conference, which a young governor from the South, Bill Clinton, headed up with uh, other senators like Al Gore, with young guys coming up up in the Democratic Party, realizing they wanted a more centrist image, rejected and pushed back on some of the cultural progressive drift that was happening uh, during that time where Democrats just could not win the White House. And um, a lot of that had to do with Cold War politics. I know I'm getting off topic here a little bit, but the DLC kind of came in and gave the, the Democrats a more centrist tone. And at the end of the Cold War, what we have seen is more often than not, Democrats are far more competitive than Republicans with the loss of the foreign policy issue and the narrative of having a common threat, a common enemy. So that brings us, of course, we're going to skip over the 16 and 20 stuff. We've talked about that ad nauseum. 
But what I will say is this. Um, I do believe at this point Donald Trump is still stronger than everybody thinks he is. And I'm going to talk about why. And then I'm going to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of Ron DeSantis. I'm going to talk a little bit about what they look like going in a head-to-head matchup. But what I want you guys to do is jump into the queue early because rather than me going on a really long soliloquy the way I normally do, I'm going to try to get myself back into a normal range of a 15-20 minute introduction and then go into questions and answers so that we can have the dialogue that I think so many of you guys call in for. So, um, look, Donald Trump, just a few hours ago, a story was posted about him getting publicly angry and upset and starting to lash out, shockingly, at both the Wall Street Journal poll and I think the NBC News poll, showing basically Ron DeSantis sitting in a mid to high 50s range and Trump in a uh, 38 to 33% range amongst GOP supporters. This is a very wide divergence, okay? And it's significant, but I don't want to make it sound like it's overly significant, okay? I was somebody that right after the 2020 election was saying that Trump support levels were going to edge down, uh, and they have. They've continued a downward trajectory all the way up until right now where he is sitting at not only the lowest point since the Republican primaries in 2016, but he's sitting at almost exactly that same range. A lot of people can say that's a, you know, that decline is a show, a sign of weakness. I disagree with that. I think it's actually a sign of resiliency. What that tells me is with that mid thirties, that 33 to 38% range in the Republican primary that are still with him, despite everything, despite the fact that his brand is losing, shows again, just how much cachet he has in the Republican party. Okay, that base, that 33, 38% base, is it probably a floor? I think I could see him actually going down to probably a 28 range in a really bad outlier pull, maybe a 25 range. For Donald Trump to be um, removed from the political map as a viable threat in either the Republican primary or in a general election, his numbers would have to drop below 20. Even then, I think he's a problem, and I'm going to explain why in just a second. But right now, sitting at a 33 to 38% range, I still believe he's the odds-on favorite to win the Republican nomination. I think he loses to Joe Biden. In fact, I think any Republican who wins the nomination probably loses the general election to Joe Biden. Maybe one notable example, and remind me to get to that. I don't want to get off topic right now. But um, this 33 to 38% polling range is exactly where Donald Trump stood going through the winner-take-all primaries in a multi-candidate field in 2016. I believe the chances of a bilateral fight between DeSantis and Trump is very remote. It's very remote, and it probably is not as good for DeSantis as everybody thinks it is. So if I haven't underscored enough how resilient and how strong the Trump base in the Republican Party is sitting in the mid-30s range. Let me underscore that a little bit more before I get to the DeSantis piece. That mid-30s range, staying where he's at, is in all likelihood enough to win him the nomination, almost guaranteed in a multi-candidate field. We'll get to that also in just a second. But it also means that he has the ability to walk away from a losing position in the primary 
run an independent candidacy, an independent campaign, and or make sure that whoever is the Republican nominee, if it is not him, loses in the general election, which I'm absolutely convinced is exactly what he will do. If DeSantis becomes the nominee, Trump will run third party or he will speak out against DeSantis. He will suppress and lower the, the voting turnout, which Republicans need very, very high consolidation of their base in order to be successful. Donald Trump can ensure that does not happen because, as I've shared on previous Mic Drop episodes, irrelevancy is a fate worse than death than Donald Trump, and he absolutely will not allow that to happen. He won't allow that to happen. Not going to happen. So if I haven't said it again, I'm going to say it one more time. Donald Trump is not going to allow the next Republican nominee, if it is not him, to become the president of the United States. Okay? So those loyalists, that hardcore third that are still with Donald Trump, to me is that base floor vote. <clears throat> I'm not going to worry about that or, or, or look at that changing until that drops beneath like a 28% range. If it gets beyond that, we'll have an emergency episode of Mike Job and figure out what's happening because somebody else, some other dynamic is catching fire. I do believe that's possible, but it isn't going to be Ron DeSantis. So that, let me talk about why that is. First of all, it is not uncommon in all primaries, but especially Republican primaries, for a front runner to emerge very early with a very wide lead and have that lead evaporate. In fact, most political consultants who are running these campaigns do not want to be the early front runner because you will become the target of criticism before you're even able to, 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 to set the frame of your campaign. And make no mistake about it, I have said this before, the right thing for Ron DeSantis to do coming out of the most successful Republican uh, victor on the midterms uh, was to shut up, was to say nothing, was to, was to allow the natural narrative to start spinning itself, to allow Donald Trump to be Donald Trump and have the establishment voices pivot away from Trump. That's exactly what DeSantis has done. I think he's done a masterful job of it. I think it's the right thing to do. Okay, you've, you've all heard me. Anybody following the show knows that I have said that's the right thing to do. DeSantis is going to find himself in a very different position in January. He is now seeing polling numbers where he is by a 20-point margin being viewed as the front runner, as the establishment, and as a lot of voters, especially tepid Republican voters who, who don't never really were comfortable with Trumpism but fell in line because that was they felt that that was their, their sworn duty as Republican voters to do, are looking for an alternative. There's a lot of people that want to move past Trump. And those people are saying DeSantis is the only heir apparent on the horizon. He's a proven winner. He wins with Hispanics. He wins with rural whites. He wins with urban whites. He's winning uh, uh, Florida, which is a linchpin to the 270 map. This is the guy that we want to have carry the banner. Not a whole lot unlike Rick Perry in 2016. You don't call him President Rick Perry because, of course, his numbers dropped precipitously after that. It's very, very, very common. Take it from me, a 30-year political hack in the Republican Party for the front runner for the GOP nomination to demonstrate a very wide lead. And in virtually every instance, that lead will dissipate. The only exception to that really, I think, in my mind, was, uh, was George W. in 2000. Okay. George W. got so far out with so much money, with so much base support, 
really in the same way that DeSantis was demonstrating. He was showing that he could win Texas. He was showing that he could win with Hispanics, an effort that I was in part uh, involved with in, in one of my first national uh, independent efforts. Um, he has he was demonstrating that he could win ur urban, rural, and suburban white voters, and he was also winning a key number of Democrats. Right, this is this is the post Ann Richards era as a new type of Republican was emerging on the scene 22 years ago. That was the George W. Bush Republican pre 9/11, um, all of that history. That's what that's what that's where DeSantis finds himself at this moment. Okay, and. What we did in 2000, what Carl Rove did in 2000, I should say, it wasn't we, it was Carl Rove, engineered what they called the Rose Garden strategy, which is people would come to Texas, to the Capitol, to meet with the governor, to demonstrate fealty and say, I wanted to be with you. And all George W. Bush did during the early days of that primary was accept meetings of people coming to him and saying, I want to be supportive. I want to be close to you in this campaign. That's the best tactic that DeSantis can employ at this moment in time. He's already doing with the media narrative. Rupert Murdoch has moved on. Fox News has moved on. Wall Street Journal's pu uh, pushing out these polls. The American Enterprise Institute has turned on him. The Heritage Institute has turned on him. A lot of the conservative pundits have turned on him. Most of the MAGA hardcore that are never going to leave are still with him. But everybody else is at least taking a look. Everybody else is at least looking at other dance partners and saying who might who else is out there and right now the only other girl on the dance floor is Ron DeSantis and that's where they're looking that's why his numbers are so high now what are the challenges that DeSantis faces the first is again after January as the presumed front runner Donald Trump is going to start attacking him that's a big problem for DeSantis because it's very early DeSantis has no national organization and when he's sitting in a high 50s range, which he is in the polling right now, any movement down becomes problematic and can fall apart very quickly. Okay, that's the first. <coughs> Second is he doesn't have any national or state-by-state -state infrastructure to sustain a type of long-term campaign that he's going to need to once he starts taking the incoming fire. Donald Trump is in the exact opposite position. Donald Trump loyalists basically occupy, I would say, 90, probably 95% of the state party infrastructures in all 50 states. Okay. If you were to contact the chair, the vice chair, the secretary, the treasurer, the lit, the executive leadership, and most of the, uh, of the delegates to each state party, each state Republican party, Donald Trump would be winning probably 80, 20 against DeSantis. It's a very significant advantage is to have that kind of infrastructure. Keep in mind, Donald Trump also is sitting on like half a billion dollars, an extraordinary amount of cash on hand that gives him a decided advantage to either buy off operatives that can pull together that kind of infrastructure quickly or to drive that narrative and, um, and, and, and use that megaphone to start driving and hammering home. Not a pro-Trump message. He doesn't need that. He's never needed that. What he needs to do is start unleashing on DeSantis, and DeSantis does not have the temerity to, to take on what Trump is in all likelihood going to unleash on him, okay? Let me say a little bit more about that, and then hopefully I'm going to have some questions in the queue because 
I don't want to keep going on too long and take up too much of this hour when other questions will start and we get into our dialogue. So go ahead and jump into the queue if you're so inclined on this or any other question, incidentally. But DeSantis, um, the, 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 the road to the 2016 presidential nomination process is replete with the corpses of Republican bodies. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, Lindsey Graham, on and on and on. All of these guys tried to pop their head up and take him on, and he would just take him out, take him out, take him out by hammering him, usually on Twitter or on the debate stage. That's exactly the type of attack that he's going to take at them uh, this time. Will they be as impactful? I, I don't know, but I don't think that he's going to knock them all out with one hit. I think it's going to be a constant uh, drip. And I think that he's got enough vocal mouthpieces in the social media space, especially with what's happening on Twitter, to really shout down and drive media narrative away from a DeSantis or another challenger, with one exception, and that is back towards the Trump fold. Okay? So DeSantis also hasn't ever really been attacked. You keep hearing about this glass jaw that DeSantis has. I believe that. Okay? I don't believe he's ever been vetted in the way that you, on the, certainly not on the national stage, that he's about to experience when and if he does run. Incidentally, I mentioned that Trump will start attacking him in early June. He's already started it. DeSantis, at least at this moment in time, his best tactical decision is to push the announcement of a preliminary committee uh, as, as late and deep into the cycle as possible while also surreptitiously building up infrastructure in key primary states. So DeSantis needs to keep as quiet as possible about anything national, avoid the questions, focus on what he's doing in Florida right now. I think he announced a, a tax cut on toll booths or something just today. It's exactly the right thing he should be doing. Every indication is that he is lining up for a potential presidential bid as he should be. The attacks from Trump will start. <clears throat> they don't have to start sticking for many, many months. Once he becomes the nominee, the media will elevate him on the natural while he's not announced. But the moment he does formally announce, the sharks will turn on him in the media. He will be attacked. Not only Trump, but other contenders will jump in there as well. Okay? So I believe that Trump is in a strong position if it's a simple DeSantis versus Trump battle. I believe that Trump is in an even stronger position if it's a multi-candidate field because of his mid-30s support base and support levels. And I believe the biggest, most significant leverage that he has in this whole primary is the fact that he will walk away from the party. And nobody doubts that. He's going to say it at some point, probably while he is lagging in the polls. He will absolutely say it. He'll start saying the system is rigged. The primaries are rigged if he's losing. And then he'll start saying, I'm going to go run an independent campaign because this is the only America first policy. And remember, all he needs is four or five percent of that constituency within the Republican Party to bolt. And if he does that will bring down uh, the GOP nominee in 2024. Now, is this a big you know, doomsday scenario with a lot of ifs that have to happen to get to this place? Yes, admittedly. Um, as I advise and mentor 
all the, the young people that work on political operations with me, if, if you're using two ifs, if your strategy has two ifs, it's not a strategy. So these, the, uh, what I've outlined is, you know, if DeSantis does this and if Donald Trump does this, then that will happen. This is all just speculation. But I think that's the likeliest scenario given where the base levels of support are in the Republican um, electorate at this moment in time. <clears throat> now, this is also going to have huge ramifications on who else jumps into this race. If DeSantis gets in, I think you draw in certainly a Larry Hogan type. I don't think Liz Cheney gets in. I don't think that she's got any desire uh, to be um, a spoiler if it's not going to work. I think with a Hogan in, that's probably enough to, to siphon off that share of the Republican lane. It's very small, probably between 3 and 6%, 5% of the Republican vote. It's kind of what John Kasich was occupying in 2016. It's what, uh, you know, the Joe Walsh's and the, um, um, who's the other governor from Massachusetts? Republican governor. Somebody help me. Whoever he was. Well, Bill Weld. <clears throat> um in 2020 and challenging uh, Donald Trump was able to peel off. It's an irrelevant number. There is no lane for the never Trumpers outside of Washington, D.C. and on social media. There's no constituency in the Republican Party to play that kind of inside game. The Republican electorate is going to continue to back and forth and back and forth as they look for who is the likeliest to win the White House back from Joe Biden, who incidentally not only do I believe we'll be the nominee, but at least at this moment in time, probably stands a very, very high chance of being reelected. And it's not because of anything he's done. Don't mean to offend anybody. It's not because of his fantastic legislative accomplishments or his Supreme Court picks. It's because the Republican circus is about to start on January 6th with all of these hearings and what they're going to do to Hunter Biden what they're going to do to Merrick Garland, what they're going to do to Dr. Fauci, what they're going to do to the president himself, I think is going to just drive the negatives of the Republican Party through the roof. And it could jeopardize not only their ability to win the White House, which I believe it will, I think it will also jeopardize their ability to pick up more Senate seats, which incidentally nobody's talking about right now and good because it's Christmas time and we just had midterm elections. And you've got to be a really really bad political head case like myself and obviously not you guys, but real political junkies who are worried about this in the middle of, of holiday shopping. Um, the Senate map doesn't look good for the Democrats. There's a lot of defense there and there's a lot of challenges. Um, Arizona was now on the map in a way that it should not be, but there it is. Um, and, and just the, 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 the map, the Senate map um, looks worse. I think this year for Democrats to hold, than it did in 2020. Can it happen? Sure, it can happen. It happened this year. And I think the Republican clown show, like I said, is going to be in, in more ragey, uh, crazy effect than it was in 2022 because they actually have the speaker's gavel and will be um, illuminating the crazy with a majority in the House. And that, I think, is going to really, really be damning to whoever the Republican nominee is likely to be. So there's one other wild card out there 
that nobody's talking about, and I'm not suggesting this is the case, but many of you guys have heard me talk about this theory before. There is one person that I think could easily beat both Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, and that person is Tucker Carlson. Uh, I'm not saying he's posturing to run. Um, he may be. I'm sure he's he, he certainly thought about it. Um, but if Tucker Carlson runs, I think he, he is hands down the nominee. And, and I want to explain why. This is really important. Uh, the old rules, the old establishment rules of looking for people like a governor or a senator and their experience and what voter groups they did with, did well with or did bad with, is the way we have historically handicapped these races. It's what we've looked. And by the way, conventional wisdom is almost always wrong, right? Phil Graham, remember Phil Graham was going to be president back in, what was it, 19... 2000, I'm sorry, when did Dole lose? 96, right? Phil Graham, senator from Texas, was was the odds-on favorite. And then and then there's, you know, there's, like I said, there's the um, the Jeb Bush was going to win. Jeb Bush had $110 million on his super PAC, and he was a Bushy, and there's no way he could lose. And, yeah, there's 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 all this speculating. And, and the D.C. crowd is almost always wrong because they're in D.C., and they talk to themselves um, so obstinately and, and so constantly that they lose kind of touch. It's that beltway mentality you hear so much about. They really lose touch where, where the average voters are. It's why Donald Trump, I think, really surprised so many of us, myself included, with just how far removed the political chattering class had gotten from, um, from the lives of average Americans. And I think it's worse now than it was in 16 and 20. But you have to understand that Donald Trump really has replaced the ideology, the classical conservative ideology of Reaganism and Bill Buckley and Goldwater and the Bushes to this populism, America firstism, isolationism, nativism, protectionism. It's really, really not just become a big part, a big faction of the Republican Party. It's become the dominant voice in the Republican Party. And so this populist rhetoric, you are now hearing um, some of the people challenging Ronna McDaniel. No one's even trying to be a Reagan conservative anymore. There's not even a facade. In fact, they're against that. They're really trying to tap into and saying we are a populist America first party. And they're looking strongly to get into that lane. Um, and that lane does not require government experience. In fact, government experience and expertise of any type is frowned upon. It's establishment. People who've spent their whole lives building up credibility, building up a policy expertise, building an understanding of government, building a conservative philosophy, governing as a governor or as a senator or as a member of the Congress, all of that is, is, is not, it's not a value add. It's not a benefit. It's not a resume builder in the way that most of us listening here and talking uh, on this show have historically understood. In fact, it's a negative. Okay. It's why Trump went out and picked Oz in the primary. It's why Oz won in the primary. It's why he went out and picked JD Vance. It's why, it's why J.D. Vance won that primary. I'm not saying he won commandingly, he won by enough. It's why Kerry Lake won that primary. It's why Herschel Walker was uncontested in his primary. 
There's something that all of them had in common. Larry Elder, during the recall for governor of California, completely eviscerates the San Diego mayor, the top Republican in California, gets 4% of the Republican base vote statewide. And this is a man that, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you have to give this guy credit as a good mayor, okay? Not as a partisan, just as a good conservative philosophy towards making government work and solving people's problems. There is no appetite for that in the Republican Party. The Republican Party has become entirely performative. So what do all of the people that I just mentioned, what do Herschel Walker, what do what do Carrie Lake, what do J.D. Vance, what do Mehmet Oz all have in common? What they all have in common is none of them had any government experience. That's a benefit. They're celebrities. It's performative. It's not designed to be advocating any ideas on government. It's not designed to be advancing a philosophy. It's not designed to be trying to implement conservatism or conservative principles. It explains the rise of Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and, God bless his heart, Madison Cawthorn. All of this is about performance. It's about being a cultural warrior and defining, very important, defining not what we are for, but what we are against, okay? That's that negative partisan con uh, concept that I've talked about so often on this show. And what I really am trying to implore all of you guys to understand is that negative partisanship is what people are looking for when they are determining who it is that they're going to be supporting. Meaning, not what does this candidate stand for, not what are the values and principles and ideas that we hold in common, not a, what are the policy issues that we share in agreement on, but who are we against? What are we against? Who is going to be the strongest fighter against the Democrats, against Antifa, against Pelosi, against Schumer, against the, the uh, illegal Mexicans coming across the border, against the trans community, against the purveyors of critical race theory, against everybody except for those in this white Christian nationalist tribe. And the person that stands at the tip of that spear is undeniably Tucker Carlson. He is the person who defines every night for millions of Republicans what they should be angry about. And when he says the biggest threat is critical race theory going into the Virginia off-cycle elections, that's what they believe. That's what they get upset about. They will storm school boards across the country arguing critical race theory. Once he changes his mind a couple of weeks later, suddenly nobody, nobody remembers critical race theory. They're now mad about drag shows with children. <clears throat> and then suddenly there's shootings, um, you know, at gay bars. Uh, that's, that is what is driving this, is Tucker Carlson. What Tucker Carlson is articulating, what America should be not for, what America is against, that is where the herd goes. That is what they're following. That is the position, that is the place that Donald Trump used to occupy. That is what Donald Trump did that was unique, that was novel in 2016. And he was doing something that was unique in American politics at the time. No one had ever done that. No politician had ever won by subtraction, right? It's one of the oldest rules you learned as a young political, I learned as a young political consultant. It's what a lot of people still believe. I, I think it's been proven wrong. And that is you win in politics by addition, right? Which is why we've always had politicians 
who've been mealy-mouthed, who've never taken strong positions, who've always left themselves a lot of wiggle room because they're trying to get as much support as possible. Donald Trump turns that whole idea on its head and literally wins the 270 map by subtraction. He literally gets to 270 votes by so charging up his minority of his minority voters. By minority, I mean the demographic minority that made up the Republican constituency in key battleground states to overperform the voter model. So Donald Trump in 2016 loses by the largest popular vote margin in history by design, by design. What he was trying to do was get overperformance amongst older white voters, rural voters with low propensity, meaning a lower likelihood to actually show up and vote. And if he could overperform that model in places like Pennsylvania or places like Ohio, then he could he could he could conceivably win he could conceivably win the presidency by subtraction by attacking people that did not meet that demographic criteria he could drive out a larger number of his share of voters while also driving out an even more significant number of non-white voters and that's exactly what happened so he loses the popular vote by a record margin but he turns out enough of his voters in the 270 map to become president of the United States. So bottom line is that's how you win by subtraction. It's entirely possible with an electoral college. You can't do it in a popular vote. You can't do it in any other country in the world, but you can do it in the United States. And Donald Trump proved that that was a reality, that that was a possibility. So guys, there's nobody in the queue. Uh, I've been talking way longer than I was supposed to. We've got a hard stop in 30, but there are also no rules saying that we've got to go the full hour. So if there are any questions, let me take a quick break because I'm losing my voice again already. Um, ask away. Otherwise, we don't have to. Uh, okay, well, I was going to say otherwise, we don't even have to go the full hour here. But um, Renee, um, thanks for jumping in. How are you doing, Renee? I'm good. Um, I was just, you know, I was processing the discussion about, you know, Trump and DeSantis and, you know, each of them's popularity levels and what, what have you. I just, you know, I have trouble seeing, sorry, seeing um, DeSantis be successful on a national stage. I mean, yes, he, I, I think he's much smarter than Donald Trump, um, but he also, he has like no presence and he doesn't, um, he controls the press a lot to a large degree in Florida. If you watch press conferences, he gets a question that he doesn't like. He throws the person out and he's not going to be able to do that on a national stage. So how does that play out? Well, actually he is. I mean, that's what Donald Trump was doing, right? Remember he was, he was having reporters being removed from press conferences. And the Republican base loves that. The Republicans just love that because the enemy is the media is the enemy, right? And so once you are able to make the media, the enemy, you're able to run against that, but but let me let me say this, uh, and, and I may be I I think I'm probably a minority amongst consultants who believes this, probably because I am so data driven. I'm not a big believer that style matters at all, in one iota in voter outcomes. It, it, it makes absolutely no difference. This idea that um, this person's smart in answering that question, or like George W. Bush, we'd say everybody wanted to go have a beer with him or, you know, Bill Clinton could feel your pain. I think that's just, that's just a bunch of bullshit. Um, the data tells me a much better and clearer story. doesn't matter 
who the Republicans put up in um, in this election cycle, he, they're going to still get roughly the same votes total as if they put up a Donald Trump in a general because election. the negative partisanship? Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. That's exactly right. Is people don't care. You could put up a dead body and say this is well, a yeah. nominee and, and you're going to get this. They put up Herschel Walker. Herschel, that's what I was getting ready to say. You said dot dead body and automatically I thought of Herschel Walker. Yeah. I'm like, he's like, he's like that old caricature of, of you know, one of the guys on, on, on I, I can't remember what that car, cartoon was, but the kid used to be like, oh, BKB. Uh, and it, you yeah. could never understand anything he said. And it's, it's, it, I guess it's, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, yeah, they've yeah. gone about as horrific as you can go and, and still, we you spend, know, it wasn't a big margin. Yeah. I mean, look, we spend billions of dollars on campaigns and look, I do campaigns for a living. So I, I, I do believe campaigns matter, but 95% of a campaign is really performative and it's not moving the needle. Again, I'm biased from where I sit. I'm a data guy. I do targeting. I spend inordinate amount of my time trying to find the small sliver of voters that can actually be moved. Most of what you hear on the cable news shows and in stories in the New York Times or the Washington Post or online is all focused on like Latinos are doing this, women are doing this, Republicans are doing this, Democrats are doing that. Yeah, it's important to give that story the narrative. It's not actually changing the outcome of races. So Donald Trump, for example, in 2016 wins the White House by 70,000 votes across six states. Four years later, Joe Biden wins by 30,000 votes across three states. Those are the margins we're talking about. Everything else is just kind of performative. So there's this whole infrastructure, this whole political industrial complex where consultants make a ton of money, millions of dollars. Uh, you know, there's there's cable news shows that are built around doing this chatter 24 hours, social media. If you follow political, you know, there's a constant dialogue. There's constant attention. There's an exorbitant, oh, sorry, there's an exorbitant amount of money that is being spent on politics. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying you have to look at it as, as what is actually happening. And if you step back and look at the data, the actual number of voters that are literally moving are so, so small that you have to have at least one person, usually a team of people that are your data team really focused on who those voters are and communicating directly to them because those two or 3% are far more important than the other 95% of what you're investing in the campaign because it doesn't matter. And it's all because of this negative partisanship that, that you articulated. And Herschel Walker is a perfect example of that. Like Republicans... We're going to vote for, 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 they voted for Herschel Walker, like, in, to, you know, 90, 90%, 93%. I didn't look at the, look, I didn't look at the Georgia outcome that, that close because everything that I was saying was going to happen basically happened. I mean, right. It was, it was a three, four point race. It didn't matter whether Herschel Walker, what he did. It, it didn't matter. So anyway, um, I don't mean to kind of beat a dead horse with that, but I, I just, it's important to put a professional campaign in, in, in context. And, and I'm, I, I do campaigns for a living. I'm not trying to be dismissive or critical of campaigns, but I want to be realistic and provide a realistic understanding of what is actually happening when we do spend millions of dollars on these campaigns is, is moving the needle on these things. It, it's really, it's a game of 
I don't even want to say it's inches. Inches is too generous. It's smaller than that. It's it, we're talking tens of thousands of voters out of you know 250 million votes cast. It's less than one percent. Is what we're trying to move in the right precincts, in the right counties, in the right states to get to that 270 map. Okay, I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Renee. I appreciate it as always, Kevin. <coughs> You're up, brother. Hey, Mike. Good evening. Yeah, I just wanted to ask um, uh, if an indictment were to be filed sometime in 2023, how that might affect the the GOP <laughs> primary field. I think at first it makes Trump stronger. I took a pause there for a reason. I want you to really breathe that in for a second. I think at first it makes him stronger. The base will coalesce. The, the challenge that's going to happen is what Trump faces right now is with the turning of the establishment. He's going to take on a lot of incoming fire where a lot of conservatives or they're not even conservative, Republican establishments types that fell on their grenade for him in 2016 and 2020, after being anti-Trump, became Trump, they're the ones that are going to turn their cannons on him. And it's not going to end well because they're not going to be successful. And let me tell you why they're not going to be successful. It's not that they won't beat him in the primary. I, th I think it's highly unlikely, but it's possible. But even if they do, they're going to find themselves in a worse position than if he were the nominee. And what I mean by that is this. Donald Trump is not going to go away. He's not going to accept defeat in a Republican primary. That will not happen. It's not going to happen. And so if, if he is defeated, he's going to take his 25 to 35% with him. And it will end up like this 68 presidential election, you know, when, when the Democrats <coughs> splintered off with the Dixiecrats and, and opened up the roadmap for, for Nixon to win. Nixon would not have won the race in 68 had the Democratic base not been split. He wouldn't have gotten to 270. He just would, there was no roadmap for Richard Nixon to get to 270 electoral votes until the, the southern states were split off by the Dixiecrats. That, that's, that is what is, that is the, in all likelihood, what happens is Donald Trump takes on a vessel, a, a, another party, an independent party operation that has infrastructure and, and, and co-ops that hijacks it because he's got enough people to go in and swarm it and just take over it and use it to, to, to get his name on the ballot. That will prevent any Republican from winning. Remember, there's nothing you can give Donald Trump to buy him off in the way you can do with a traditional Republican nominee, except I guess arguably you could say, you know, I'll, I'll, um, I'll pardon you which would, would, would be illegal, but I mean, that, that doesn't stop the guy, right? Is you could go to DeSantis and say, I'll, I'll back you and support you if you pardon me because otherwise I'm going to be in jail. I mean, that's a realistic, that's a realistic deal that could be, could be made in promise. And maybe that's the leverage point. Maybe that's really what he's trying to leverage here. But, but, but beyond that, it's just not in his DNA to walk away. Because again, that irrelevancy is, is a, is a fate far worse than death for Donald Trump. He, he doesn't want an ambassadorship to anything. He doesn't want an appointments to anything. He, he, what, what he loses with the with the relevancy as, as, the, as the, the titular head of the Republican Party 
is far more damaging than anything else you could possibly offer the guy to make it work. So do I believe that he can't, that an indictment matters? I think initially, like I said, I think it, it, it helps him because the base will coalesce against him because he needs, he needs a common enemy, right? He needs the deep state after him. He needs a Hunter Biden investigation to show that he was right all along. An indictment is just Joe Biden trying to, you know, get rid of him because he's a political threat, right? That's the argument is Joe Biden is using this to imprison his political enemies because I'm not wrong. I'm not, I'm not a crook. They're, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you, right? I'm just in the way. And, and that's what he's going to leverage. That's what he's going to say. And I think that, you know, the next step beyond that is the establishment Republican, the establishment Republicans are going to turn the cannon inside the ship and start shooting at him. And that's where shit's going to get real because they, they think that that's going to work. And it, it's just not, that is not, it's not the way this guy operates. Tra the traditional Washington insiders will be the ones that say, oh yeah, an indictment comes out and then the Republican base will leave and the Republican voters will wake up. No, not the way it's going to work. It's to, this this guy is not a rational actor. He's not he's not somebody who's just going to walk away. He, he's going to bring the whole thing down with him because he has an indictment gives him massive leverage. If you think about it, he knows it's coming. He is going to be he is going to be indicted. Garland is going to bring charges. That is going to happen. At that point, Donald Trump I think actually has more leverage, not less leverage, over the Republican Party. Everybody in the Beltway is thinking, oh, that'll be the end of them. That's how we get rid of them is the Republican voters are going to wake up and be like, oh, he can't win an election while he's under indictment. Yeah, that's bullshit. If you think he's going to stop, you're, you're nuts. And if you think that the Republicans will, will leave him, you're nuts. And again, when I say Republicans leave him, I mean, if he sits at that floor, that mid-30s range, he has all the leverage in the world over the party. He's going to determine whether or not the Republicans are even competitive, let alone whether or not they win. And that's what he's banking on. <clears throat> Hope that helps. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's pretty much uh, what I was thinking. And I had a, um, a separate question on a, another subject. Um, you've mentioned a few times, you know, there's a very, very small number of people that you're trying to reach when you're running a campaign. So once you have identified who those people are, how do you decide on what messages to deliver to them? That's a really good question. And that, that question is actually how my profession has changed more in the past 30 years than, than anything, um, any other aspect of campaigns. You know, when, when I first started doing campaigns in the early 90s, the maxim then was there's a third of the voters that are with you no matter what. There's a third that are against you. And then there's a third that are undecided. And that third was the craft that I learned as a young political consultant. It was the art of persuasion. Is we, we learned, I learned as a young political consultant how to persuade voters. And we were trying to convince voters to come in our direction. So you would sell policy ideas. You would sell a philosophy of government. You would, you would convince them that your candidate was better. Those days are gone. There's, there's no, no such thing as a third undecided. Like that, that's, that is long, long, long gone. And so now what we, what we focused on is political consultants. And it's one of the things that I really don't like about the profession. 
unfortunately I'm pretty good at it, but I'm trying to get out of it is the idea of mobilization is far more important than persuasion. What that means is because there are so few undecideds, right? There used to be a third. Now there's basically three, three to four percent that are true undecided voters. So the the math tells you that rather than focusing on just those three to four percent, you also get added ancillary benefit from driving your bases to turn out in higher numbers. It's actually more efficient to try to get higher turnout with your base than to spend money fighting over that one and a half percent, one point six, one point seven percent to win that those undecideds to put your guy in the win column, your your, your candidate in the win column. Am I making sense? You following? Yeah. yeah okay. So, so what that means is you have to use mobilization. Instead of persuading and convincing people to come to your side, you need to drive the turnout model higher. And when you drive the turnout model higher, there are two things, two tools in your tool chest, two. And they work really, really, really well. But there's, you know, there may be a handful of others, but those two, two tools are fear and anger. If you can make your base so angry at the other side or so fearful of the other side, you're going to you're going to see turnout numbers increase. And this is what Trump used to great effect in 16 and 20 to motivate his voters to show up his lower propensity voters at a higher level, at a higher range than even the best pollsters were identifying. And it's why the race was closer than anybody was anticipating. So to your question, how do we get to that small range of one to three percent? Because they're still important, those undecideds, right? And you'll remember from my work on the Lincoln Project, when we were talking, when I was talking about the Bannon line, what I was talking about was four percent of Republican voters. Very public about this. Because I wanted people to know what we were actually literally trying to accomplish. I wasn't trying to win 50% of the Republican voters, I wasn't trying to save the Republican Party. I knew that was long, long gone. The data was saying that there was a swath of four to seven percent of Republican voters that we could get. And what we the way we identified those were not through conventional polling, because that type of a margin, you're not going to pick up with an 800 to 1200 sample of voters nationwide. The way I identified it was with analytic work is the response that we were getting from the voluminous number of ads that we were putting out. When you test those with certain demographics, you start to see a much more vibrant picture of what actual voter subgroups are telling you and what they're responding to. And so I think what we pioneered in, on the Lincoln Project, and, and no other, no one else has picked this up yet, but they'll, they'll pick it up in probably four or six years, is that you, with good analytic work, you get much, much better insight than you can on traditional polling techniques. And this is very important, way better, way better qualitative research than focus groups do. Focus groups are largely a relic of last century. They're fun and they're kind of cool, I guess, but they're not, they're not really informing much. They're certainly not the best way to determine who those voters are or what the message is. If I'm buying right and I'm placing my social media spend right, the analytics that I'm getting back are far better than conventional polling. Let me give a, a quick case in point. Again, on the Lincoln Project, when I was I spent about um, 
I probably spent maybe two and a half, three million dollars um, on on our, our analytic work, just just analyzing all of our spend. Of that three million on research, two and a half to three on research, I think I spent maybe, maybe, maybe $150,000, on traditional polling in North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Arizona. Um, that was it. That was it. That was all the polling that I did. And and that traditional polling, I don't if I'm not making sense or if I'm if I'm talking too too much in the weeds, let me know and I'll explain more. But 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 basically what I was doing was I was using polling to check, just do a gut check as a guy who's been doing this for a long time. Like I was teaching my young guys, these guys in their 20s, how to, how, how, to, how to do this as a consultant. And it was pure analytics. I'd never done that before. We always relied on traditional polls and polling to tell us what the state of the race was. Lincoln Project, I completely flipped that on, on its head. No one had ever done that before. It was all analytics. But I, you know, again, just just probably being an older guy, I was like, let me check. I, I want to check that because if I'm wrong, I'm, you know, I could fuck up the whole race. Excuse my language, but and I don't want to be the guy who fucks up the whole race because then everybody remembers you forever as the guy who fucked up the whole race, right? So what we did was we pulled to check, spent a couple hundred grand to 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 to, to check the three million in analytic work that I was that I had to see if it was matching up and 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 it matched up entirely and perfectly. And the reason why that's really important for a campaign professional is this. Unless you're doing what's called a track, and I explained what a tracking poll is late in the election cycle, where you, you use a third of your sample every day to watch the rolling average to see where your candidate is doing. It's called a track or a rolling average because it literally rolls every day. Sorry if I'm way off topic here, guys, but my kind of mind's a little bit mushy. But, but, but basically, unless you're doing that, you're not getting a sense of where the race is trending with these voters. If you're using analytic work, you're getting a daily look at what people are responding to. You're literally looking at your Facebook data, basically, because that's where the voters live that matter. You're looking at Facebook analytics daily. Get a, get a daily report. I'd have a daily report for my data guys, and we'd go over all of the analytics to tell us what messages are working in which precincts, with which demographic profiles, in which counties, in which states that we're going to get us to 270. That's that's way better than using a traditional poll because, you know, I get a poll and I look at it and we go over it, and, and after that afternoon, it's worthless. With my analytic work, it's constant flow of information coming in on a daily basis as I get the next analytic report, and I can change my message, I can change my buy to which demographics, I can make adjustments every day and see how that's affecting the state of the race. I don't know if that makes any sense or if that was way too abstract. Maybe, no, I'm maybe, tracking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe I need to do another another uh, show on this because um, it's a little bit in the weeds, but. But that's, that's the difference between, so that's the answer on how we find who, who it is, is we literally put a schematic of visual and text ads to show which words and which visual images people are literally responding to. And of course, video is, is much better than that. And we use a, a number of different metrics to see what's working, how sticky is it, how, how, meaning how long are people looking at this, how much are they sharing it. 
And that was one of the things about the Lincoln Project ads is I'd never seen ads that were that sticky. Those ads were not motivating and moving voters, by the way. 95% of the ads that you all saw on the Lincoln Project were not targeted to those voters that I was working with. I had my own ads. You all never saw any of them. Why? Because you weren't swing voters. You probably weren't. Li- you probably don't live in Maricopa County. I mean, a couple of you might, but you probably aren't the right demographic, and you probably weren't analytically telling me that you are a swing voter. And so, once I, I once we were identifying who you literally were, I could test messages on you every day until I found out what you were responding to. The rest of the stuff was fun, and it was important, and it it, it drove the narrative, and it drove Donald Trump crazy. And we got Brad Parscale fired and we did all that cool shit that you all remember. But that, that wasn't moving the voters. That wasn't winning the 270 map. That's that's what my job was. That's what my shop was in charge of is, is winning is winning the race. And um, and that's how we do it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kind of kind of running out of gas here, but I hope that helped. Kevin. I'm <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I, I mean, I <clears throat> I'm interested in in the analytics, I think of. Uh, Peg has a question in the chat about how to to get <coughs> some of them. Well, let me explain what that means. And again, I'm sorry if this is a little bit nerdy and in the weeds, but basically what you do is normally it starts out with a traditional poll. It, it didn't in our instance with the Lincoln Project, but you can test an ad matrix. Basically, it's like, okay, here's a crime. Everyone's saying crime is a top issue. Jobs are an issue. Choice is an issue. Immigration is an issue. You have your data team come up with 10, 12, 30, 40 ads under each one. Do we put Hispanic faces in the immigration ad? Do we put scared white women in the ad? Do we call it an invasion? Do we call it immigration? Do we use the word amnesty? And then you start putting these into a rotation where you're targeting certain demographics. In our instance, we were targeting, hyper-targeting Republican women specifically with college degrees that lived in specific counties. And so I would run all of these ads on crime, on immigration, on jobs, on the Confederate flag, on Donald Trump. And every day I would get their response back to those. So it's not like you can go to a website and say like, what are the analytics here on this? What analytics means is I'm getting a report based off of what I'm purchasing, the ads that I'm purchasing, to see which ads are actually working. Look at it like a live focus group, right? You go into a focus group and you start showing voters this stuff, and then you look at the 12 people in the room and they start responding and going, oh, I like that ad. Oh, I don't like that ad. Oh, I like that Ron DeSantis guy. Oh, I hate that Ron DeSantis guy. And you take it all down and you write it down and you you videotape it, and then somebody comes in and reads the tea leaves for you and says, well, this is where the voters are at, I guess. I mean, that was the shit we used to do in the 80s and 90s. And I'm not saying there's some value, but it's really not that valuable anymore. If you use analytics, you get daily reports from the actual response of people that you can discern exactly who they are. I literally know who you are on Facebook. I know that you are Jane Smith on, you know, Wild Oak Avenue in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, and that you're a registered Republican and you've got a college degree and you, you know, drive a, you know, whatever. That tells me that's, that's, that's valuable data. And so what you do is you spend, a data team spends all that time 
building up an analytic and demographic profile to tell me who is likely to move, both likely and specifically of who is going to move away from the Republican Party in this instance and to the Democratic Party. That's that's what I do. That that right there is my job. So that's that's what Mike Madrid does. Mom, if you're watching, that's what I do for a living. That so so that that is that is my job. Is I, my job is to find out how we can build a voter model that tells me how many votes are how many people are going to vote, how they're likely to vote, and where we need to spend with what message to which people in order to get to fifty percent plus one. And I think what my point is. That group of people that actually moves in American politics at this moment in history is literally in the tens of thousands across six states. There's very, very, very few of them. Very few of them. So all of the shit that you're seeing in a campaign, I'm not going to say it's not, it's not important. What I'm going to say is it's not that important. It's, 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 uh, it's uh, campaigns matter. I've been doing them for 30 years. I believe in that. But what I'm going to say is the data, if you look at the data, the actual voters who move in American politics that determine who the next leader of the free world is going to be are, are, uh, it's an infinitesimal amount. And that's my job is to go in there and find them. And you better fucking be right because if you're not right, you're going to, you know, don't lose democracy. So anyway, that's that's what I do. I, 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 I'm seeing some response that I, I am making sense. So it's kind of hard because I'm so close to it. It's what I do. That's 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 my job. That's how most of you guys met me on the Lincoln Project, is that was what I was trying to explain to people. And by the way, we were the first campaign to ever tell people what, exactly what we were doing with the strategy. Nobody, nobody in American politics had ever done that before which is why people are so nervous, right? It's, it's why people go, the, the number one comment I was getting and have gotten in the two years since is you really helped calm me down. And the reason why is because I was telling you what campaigns do. Most people have no idea. It's just you read the Washington Post and you, you're watching CNN or you're watching MSNBC and then you're seeing people tweet and you're like, oh my God, like what the hell is going on? Right? Why is Joe Biden going to to Independence Hall and railing on uh, the threats to democracy twice? He does this twice before the midterms. Remember that episode when I was talking about him using the phrase "MAGA Republicans"? I mean, my ears, you know, picked up right away. I was like, their analytics are showing that people are responding very negatively to that. That's that's when I was like. That, that didn't just come from his gut. All of his researchers and his data team and the pollsters were seeing this pop off the charts and saying, the Republicans are looking like extremists. Keep pushing them into the extreme. That's how we're going to win the race. That's how we're going to win suburban women back from what Youngkin got on critical race theory. That's where the race is going to be at. And they were right. And that was what I was trying to point out when I started to hear those terms. I was like, that's not a normal term. You've never heard Democrats use that until the same day Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer start saying MAGA Republicans. Very important. And that, that's what I was trying to point out when that happens. I think, I think that's why, yeah, thanks, Laura. But I think, that, I think that's why what I'm trying to do here is a little bit unique because I'm literally trying to explain um, what we do. 
well, this is this is this is how campaign professionals look at a campaign. I'm not trying to spin you on on whatever. I, I don't I don't I don't particularly care. I mean, I care, but I don't I don't care in the way you see a commentator on CNN or MSNBC trying to carry the party line and <clears throat> do all do all that bullshit. I just, most of the people you see on cable news shows are not political professionals. They're, they're pundits. It's like it's their own profession, but they're not. They're not professionals. They're not making the decisions that I'm telling you guys is how we make them. I hope that I hope that was helpful. Kind of, I was kind of a long. It's no. It's all really helpful, and I think you can see from some of the comments. You know, these kinds of detailed explanations. I, I mean, there's there's just no content like this out there that's why you know, that's you. why i call in yeah I, it's I really it. good it's really yeah, helpful yeah bring those questions and if i'm not making sense I, i'm so close to this sometimes i'll say things or use terms where where, where you know I, I may not be making sense but just just push me on it and then i'll, I'll go okay let, let me explain that why we do that or why this is happening or, or the fundamentals that i'm looking for as a professional as opposed to you know trying to do the horse race and sound kind of cool on tv I just, I don't, I look as I don't have cable. I don't watch the cable news shows because there, there's no, there's no, there's, there's nothing that is happening on cable news that is reality that is telling you what's happening from the fundamentals of a campaign. I'm not saying don't watch it for entertainment or enjoyment or to, if it calms you down or makes you mad, whatever, whatever you need from it, go get that from there. But, 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 but political professionals, we don't watch that stuff. It, it, it doesn't. It's not, it has nothing to do with what's happening on the campaign, and y'all need to know that. <coughs> Hope that was helpful. Super anyway, helpful. yeah, have a great holiday, Mike. Kevin, you have a great holiday too, guys. Thank you so much. I've gone on a little bit longer than I hope. My voice is giving out. I think we're probably going to do this, if not next week. You'll hear from me probably a couple more times um, before the end of the year. But let me say this. Send me your topics because we're, I think we're going to have pretty small groups in December. You know what? Let me say this. I hope we have small groups in December because I don't want too many of y'all thinking or, or being too consumed by politics during the holiday season. This is it's a good time to, like, lower your blood pressure and shut down. And there's nothing wrong with having a smaller, you know, uh, intimate group on, on mic drop. It'll come back in January, guys. This isn't going anywhere. And if you, if you tune out from politics for the rest of the year, I guarantee you, you're going to feel a crisis in January anyway, because that's just the way that we, 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 we communicate to people broadly on our platforms. Um, we're going to be okay. Country is going to be fine. I feel a lot better about democracy than I have at any point in the last six, eight years after these midterms. We're starting to see longer term trends of the voters moving in the right direction at least away from extremism, if not for something else. And for the moment, that's a good break to say, you know what? This was a pretty good year, guys. Everything turned out pretty well, especially from where it began. The fundamentals were not looking good. They look a lot better now. And I believe that where we're heading is very positive uh, for the Democratic Party. I think the Republican Party is going to have a, be in a lot of trouble. Of course, in politics, anything can change. But for the moment, uh, I do want to also say thank you guys for joining in, for always supporting the show. And as long as um, this is valuable to you, we'll keep doing this. And just, you know, um, send me those topics as the groups are smaller over the course of the next couple of, of weeks. Let's have some more detailed conversations like this. We're just kind of the hardcore folks who really want to learn 
about things like analytics, about different polling techniques, about focus groups, about message development. We've done some great stuff on crisis communications that I think were helpful when Herschel Walker had his kind of blow up. We can talk about all of these things in great detail so I can give you kind of what a professional consultant looks at, uh, which is very different than I think you're probably getting anywhere else, as Kevin mentioned. Anyway, I'm trying to say goodbye, and I just can't say goodbye. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you guys joining this episode of Mic Drop. We'll see you guys next week.